Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a wonderful show planned for you today. Brianna, I think we broke a very long streak of not matching <laughs> at all. We've got a little little bit of similarity. We got a little bit of green simpatico. We used to be so good with this. I know, we were in sync for a long, a long time, and we've just not been happening. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna be thinking really hard about your wardrobe at like 8:15 tomorrow. You do the same, okay. and we'll see if we can we'll keep this going. <laughs> All right, well, Ian, uh, more serious news. What are we talking about today? Well, Robbie Tucker Carlson is hitting back at critics who say previously unseen footage from January 6th should remain out of the public domain. And for 26 months, that footage was held from the American public. The January 6th committee made certain. Now, the Justice Department also kept a lid on that video footage. And in fact, in some cases, DOJ did not share it with criminal defendants who'd been charged on January 6th in violation of their constitutional rights. So we felt it was a public service to bring what we could to you. There was no justification for keeping this secret any longer and a powerful argument to be made that sunlight is always and everywhere the best disinfectant. And in fact, because it was video evidence, it is to some extent self-explanatory. Anyone can look at the tape and decide what he or she thinks of it. Yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer slammed Carlson's coverage and called for Fox News to shut it down. Quote, to say the January 6th attack was not violent is a lie. Fox News must order Tucker Carlson to stop promoting the big lie and stop defending the insurrectionists. Here he is at the Capitol. These lies continue tonight. Rupert Murdoch, who has admitted they were lies and said he regretted it, has a special obligation to stop Tucker Carlson from going on tonight now that he's seen how he has perverted and slimed the truth and from letting him go on again and again and again. Not because their views deserve such opprobrium, but because our democracy depends on it. Now, Ohio Senator J.D. Vance said in response to Schumer's comments, quote, Today, I was asked by multiple reporters about Tucker's show last night. I was asked zero times about one of the most powerful figures in government actively promoting censorship of a media figure. The assault on our democracy is this. Mm. I, I agree with J.D. Vance. I don't. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate at all for a political figure like Chuck Schumer to be in, I mean, I get he's giving his opinion fine, but he's saying, you know, he's I implying the, all the government power that comes with, you know, his office, that he would marshal that against Tucker for saying things he doesn't like. Now, you don't have to think this was a good segment or it was a good idea. He a absolutely has the right to release this footage, the video footage. I think the public should decide for themselves what they think about additional context for what happened on January 6th. To say that's a threat to democracy is basically to say that people being left to develop their own ideas or conclusions about things is a threat to democracy, which is which is like a self-defeating idea. Well, democracy is so fragile, it must be zealously gate-kept and guarded by powerful Democrats, is, effective, is what he's saying, effectively. So let's allow that the release of the footage itself is, if not good, then justifiable and defensible, uh, especially given that there hasn't really been much follow-up to the Democrats' claims that doing so was a security Safety risk. Yeah. And Tucker Carlson said that he put the, the uh, showed the footage to Capitol Police before 
revealing it to the public to make a further assurance that there was there was nobody putting, being put at risk there. That being said, what do you make of Schumer's claim that what Tucker Carlson is doing in characterizing the people who broke into the Capitol uh, illegally as uh, sightseers, uh, as opposed to people who you know, broke the law. What do you make of him characterizing what Tucker is doing and downplaying them or downplaying that moment as the big lie, as telling the big lie in a way that would be in violation of what uh, Fox News's leadership, well, Murdoch, I, wants to happen? I mean, to my mind, the, I could be wrong. I thought the big lie is the idea that Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election, which is not true. Um, right, obviously Fox is involved in this lawsuit over whether not so much its host, but the guests they brought on promoted that view, and then eventually were kind of discredited and put, pushed. And the debate is over whether that happened rapidly enough. Were they putting them on and really knowing they shouldn't, and et cetera? And that's what's going on with that. And does it violate the law? Um, I, I don't know that. January 6th was a big, messy, chaotic event involving you know hundreds, thousands of people engaging in different kind of behaviors, many of which were contemptible, some of which were perfectly fine. Again, 99% of the people there are protesting peacefully. Now, in service of a cause, you might think is wrong, but again, that's just democracy. People can have causes and protest in favor of them, even if you don't like them. Uh, I, I believe he, he pointed out that you know people smashed windows and broke down doors and fought with cops, and that was wrong. What I recall from the footage we watched yesterday of Tucker talking is that he characterized also a lot of just kind of walking around in lines, the police didn't really seem to care much about it, as not as riotous as we were made to believe, or by, by just showing footage constantly of windows being smashed and all that. I think that's how we characterize it. Right, I would characterize everyone who went in as a trespasser and a lawbreaker who should be dealt with to the full extent, fullest extent of the law. I have no problem with that at all. Um, so fine, but yeah, I I, I so I may disagree with points of how he characterized it, but I, I guess I'd have to look very closely to see exactly what he said. Yeah, I tend to agree that there's some slippage here by Chuck Schumer. I think that I understand why Democrats want to characterize Tucker's use of this new footage as perpetuating the big lie, because even conservatives, as evidenced by the messages and texts and stuff that we've seen now from this Dominion lawsuit that you referenced, show that behind the scenes, Richard Murdoch, even Tucker Carlson himself, was very frustrated with the position that Donald Trump was putting him in, um, saying that he you know, passionately hate, hates Trump and all these other quotes that have come out of that story. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I, what I think where Democrats are on safer ground is to say, you know, even you've admitted that the big lie is wrong, and mm -hmm. now you're doing more of that. You're perpetuating the big lie. But I don't know if they've crossed their I's and dotted their T's on this argument that simply showing this footage is tantamount to lying about who won the election in 2020. Right, and maybe just just let Tucker do it. Don't make such a big deal about it, right? Isn't the argument, uh, I, I think you've made this argument, and yeah, it's true, like clearly there's a lot of voters who have no appetite for this stuff whatsoever, even Republicans who are sick of it and are sick of Republican officials and leaders who keep talking about it. Yes. So just kind of let them, you know, step step on the rake and hit, hit yes. it in the face. Uh, it's not a threat to democracy. It's not, uh, he did not go on, Tucker, by showing this footage, did not say that Donald Trump won the election. He did not. Uh, he added clarity. It's from the other side. We got a lot of it from, from one side. Now we're getting it from the other side on, on what went on on that very messy, very terrible day. 
Uh, yeah. I, I make no excuse. I, yeah. I will make no excuses for people who broke down windows and set things on fire and fought with the police in any context, yeah, including think, this one. I, I think that the Democrats have really played this one wrong. They should have uh, drawn from their uh, Twitter files, Matt Taibbi playbook, and just written this one off as a nothing burger and tried to ignore it until it went away. Because honestly, it does feel like, from this perspective, Chuck Schumer giving these statements, people kind of anticip anticipatorily criticizing what Tucker Carlson was going to do with the coverage without having actually seen it mm -hmm. first. It, it felt like that umbrage gave a lot of life to the story and to footage which ultimately isn't that interesting or especially revealing. Mm. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he's just showing, he's showing more footage. Like, he's right, he's showing actual video footage. He's not describing for you what what he saw and just like, a, you know, you have to trust what he's summarizing, what he saw. You can see the footage. Yeah. And I, I think it would be totally fine. It would be a totally different deal if Democrats were arguing that, well, we should have access to the footage. We can release it all. But they did have access. They just didn't do anything with it. And the idea that it undermined the safety of existing escape routes in the Capitol is that that seems like a disinformation to be to be clear. Yes. If they're going to make that argument, which they made quite a bit, I think they really have to prove it. Yeah. They we we've seen what Tucker showed showed now. At this time we have to prove it. And if you have a conflicting testimony from Capitol Police officers who actually do think that there's a problem with this footage being out there, let's hear about it. Mm -hmm. But the the it feels at this point like the boy who and cried it did, wolf. It did no matter how you uh, describe it, it did justify itself in that it showed that um, that government witness, uh, Ray Epps, was, was, it contradicts what he said to Congress. I, I'm not saying that should change necessarily yeah, your I mean, that, that's what the happens, thing. I, I mean, that is the danger of the Tucker, te te the Tucker yeah. not testimony, but approach yeah. here. I, I understand that there's a conspiracy behind every wall. And, and proof that a government witness lied in their testimony is in the public interest. Yes, and that's it's sloppy for Democrats to have put themselves in that position. Yeah. But also, it is incumbent on you to prove the materiality of that if you are making these insinuations that 1-6 wasn't what the Democrats represented it was. And for me, from my perspective, it doesn't seem like the, the, the shaman walking through the halls at some points not being immediately arrested. Well, nobody was arrested because we know that the cops were overwhelmed. That, that's not, there's no argument there. And so I, I agree with Democrats who are making this case that Tucker Carlson is making the footage stand for something that isn't true, even at the same time as he can poke some holes in the, Democratic, the, the Democrats' J6 hearing testimony, and rightly so, that's fine. That's, I, my criticism of Dems is being sloppy, but I have a criticism of Tucker Carlson that it seems like he's misrepresenting reality on the basis that you know, painting some picture that the cops should have outnumbered 10 to 1 or 100 to 1 or 1,000 to 1 or whatever it was, should have been, what, handcuffing people and corralling them into rooms as though they had the capacity to do so. And I think that kind of misrepresentation is why Democrats were frustrated that this was going to come out. I think there's a way to have insulated themselves against that, release the footage themselves, tell their own narrative, tell their own story, make the case. But I don't think implying that Tucker Carlson is doing election denial is necessarily the the best approach here. But I don't know. Well, I'm not sure what the police should have done. I, I don't reflexively just assume that what they did was correct. Well, you probably me, don't either. Me either. But I mean, I mean, I don't think this is rocket science. Play it out. You have talked about how many thousands of people were at the Capitol. Yeah. How many police were at the Capitol? What, what is your estimate of how much they were outnumbered? Well, they were definitely outnumbered by the crowd. I don't know if they were. They may have. I don't know. If, I mean, they, they weren't outnumbered at the time. 
that, uh, that the QAnon champion was surrounded by like nine of them at once. No. That's not the footage I saw. I didn't see the cute on shaman surrounded by nine police officers. Yeah, there's a part where he's just like, they, they, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's odd. It's odd. No, I, I also don't think people are acting as though the QAnon shaman should have been a special target. There were people who were more threatening. There were the people who were breaking down the buildings, breaking down the walls. There were people who were armed with various tools, flags as poles as bayonets and things like that. That's the threat. If you're telling me that the, the QAnon shaman looked to be armed or was threatening people or beating up people and the cops ignored him for some reason, I think that is an indictment of the cops. And again, I have no issue indicting the cops' behavior here at this event, at this protest, at this insurrection, whatever you want to call it. The question is whether or not the fact that the cops didn't arrest the QAnon shaman on site is somehow evidence that the, the QAnon shaman wasn't breaking the law or that it was evidence that, you know, he was invited and, and, and it was supposed to be there under the, under the law. And he's, you know, not been convicted. That's obviously not the case. Mm. All right. Well, we got to leave it there. I'm looking forward to your radar. That's coming up next. Stay with us. House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre doubled down on describing January 6th as an insurrection after Tucker Carlson released bombshell footage of what happened. Here she is at the podium yesterday talking about this. Anybody who watched that video uh, in a, with their own eyes in a real way and saw what happened on that day would, would disagree with what was just stated. Um, the president has been very clear. January 6th was the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. And we should be focused on making sure that never happens again. And so we are certainly, uh, we agree. I know um, uh, Minority Leader and, uh, uh, and uh, Senator Schumer have already said this and would hope that keeping the Capitol and Congress safe and secure remains uh, congressional leaders' number one goal. And that should be our focus. Naturally, our friends at Late Night Television couldn't help get involved. Here's Stephen Colbert. Thanks in large part to the former president. There's a whole industry of people who make a good living trying to make you think you're insane. Well, I make a very good living reminding you that you're not. Now, you'd think, you would think, you think that once the people gaslighting you on a daily basis have been revealed to be liars, say, in multiple text messages in a $1.6 billion court filing by Dominion Voting Systems, they would pump the brakes. But apparently, some people are just addicted to being dicks. <laughs> Case in point, Fox News host and, and toddler sucking on a dog turd, Tucker Carlson, cherry-picked innocuous clips to try to rewrite what we all saw happening with our own eyes on January 6th. They were peaceful, they were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists, they were sightseers. Sightseers, sightseers, really? Grab a rock, honey, we're going to the Louvre. I, I, I want to peacefully smear my crap on the Mona Lisa. See if she keeps smiling after that. <laughs> All right, so just to go to the Karine Jean-Pierre clip first. Again, I don't know why Democrats are playing it this way. Because here's the thing. Most people agree that what happened at the Capitol at 1-6 was deeply inappropriate, wrong, and embarrassing for the Republican Party. Or at least for Trumpism. Trump. Yeah. However... It is also true that the real story of trying to steal the election was not what happened 
on the lawn of the Capitol on 1-6, but what happened in the weeks before when Donald Trump was making calls to people like the Georgia Secretary of State, asking him to rig the count so that he would win in a, a crucial, a critical, uh, close state like that. That is the story. And since the beginning, Democrats have decided to downplay or emphasize that story less than the story of what happened literally at the Capitol that day, which was very attenuated from any actual outcome where an election result was changed, right? What Donald Trump was doing beforehand could have led to a different outcome if the officials in the various states that he tried to influence did not have as much integrity. And mind you, these are Republican officials that stood up to Donald Trump and said, no, I'm not going to rig this election result for and you. And court after court, sometimes with Republican justices on Correct. these courts. Correct. So the Democrats standing at the podium, Corinne Jean-Pierre standing at the podium and saying, 1-6 was the closest that we've had to having our democracy overturned since the Civil War or whatever it was. You know, it... it it, it raises this desire to object even from someone like me, whereas I wouldn't have object to the broader story about the election denialism and the effort that the Trump really sincerely did make. Well, the Trump US made, not these people. were murdered. Um, I mean, sure. I mean, you know, quibble, quibble with the analogy, events, yes. but it certainly was an attempt to undermine democracy. Mm -hmm. It just happened more so because of Donald Trump and not because of the QAnon right. shaman or anybody else. Right. And Donald Trump should have been held responsible for it. He was correctly, in my view, impeached. He should have been, they should have voted to remove him. Many Republicans did, not enough, but a, a lot of them did. It's the most bipartisan vote to, to end the, the sitting head ever taken in this country. Um, that was the mechanism for holding him accountable at some, but it's, and uh, you know what, if he runs again, but he was, so he was not held accountable by that. It's, if he runs again, it'll be up to voters to decide. That's democracy. And they keep saying it's a threat to democracy, but then acting like these very institutional gatekeeping, guardkeeping things need to be done to prevent the people from weighing in or deciding. Like, if you believe in democracy, you have to trust the people right. to, to not endorse this kind of thing. And you know, we've actually had really good indication that the people will not endorse this kind of thing right. because candidates even among Republicans who have leaned into this, lost decisively where others would not right. have. Now, here's the so thing, So we can though. trust in democracy. Here's, here's the problem, and here's where I think Democrats and some of these critics um, that we just watched clip, clips of are on stronger footing. As a consequence of this Dominion lawsuit, we now know that even people at Fox News, Richard Murdoch, Tucker Carlson— Rupert Murdoch. Rupert, sorry, Rupert Murdoch agreed with us. So we know now that Rupert Murdoch said in these uh, documents that have come out and the testimony that came out of that lawsuit that he believed that TV network hosts at his own network, mm -hmm. Fox, went too far. That's a quote. We know that uh, Tucker Carlson said of Trump, I hate him passionately because of the box that he was being put in of having to make some excuses for, dare I say, cover for Trump's behavior as Trump was engaging in all of this election denialism. And at the same time that behind the scenes, there was this acknowledgement by people at Fox that Donald Trump was kind of off the rails. The public-facing discourse at Fox News was to continue to do this kind of soft, soft shoe apologia for the man. And that's, that, I think, is a, a legitimate concern because they're, in effect, misleading their viewers. And again, 
participating in a kind of politics that is ultimately hurting the Republican Party. And by the way, Do uh, Tucker Carlson also acknowledges mm -hmm. in some of this discourse that this Trump Trumpism, this election denialism, is actually hurting the Republican Party, which is why it is, again, so confusing well, for him. That's why he eventually, he defenestrated the chief um, architect of the view that the election had been stolen, um, Sidney Powell, uh, very, sure. very aggressively on his So job. this is the question that comes up. What is the goal of the current messaging around 1-6, which, of course, is not in and of itself election denial, but the people there were there mm. protesting the outcome of the election because they believed it had been stolen because Donald Trump told them it had been stolen. Mm -hmm. So how can you, how can one say that they're in a position where they are speaking out against election denialism when, look, the footage itself is neutral. Footage is footage. Right. You can put footage out there and disclaim these people shouldn't have been there. Um, they were there because they believe the election had been stolen and it has not been stolen. Um, but also, they, you know, they're, they're, what they did there has been misrepresented in some ways. That's perfectly legitimate. It's not clear to me that that is what Tucker Carlson is doing in his monologues and in his coverage of that footage. Yeah, but as you just said, I mean, I don't know how, what, what Tucker views as his role, but it, it can just be from a journalistic standpoint. He, it, it, releasing these video footage, it might be in the best interest of the public to see more about what happened. Sure, but you say we don't yeah. know a lot about Tucker's, how Tucker sees but his I, own I role. I don't know if Tucker we do sees know his view as we, advancing the cause of the Republican Party. Well, we saying. do have some insight into what Tucker Carlson... Like, I don't view my role as advancing Barabi. the cause of a political party. We, did see, we do have some insight into what Tucker sees as his role when we see him in these Dominion, um, these Dominion lawsuit mm -hmm. communications expressing a personal view, but feeling compelled to have a public-facing view, because ultimately the role of the network as a whole, I don't know if he wants that to be the case, but the role of the network of the whole as a whole is to provide a degree of cover for the behaviors and positions that are taken by uh, Donald Trump, or at, least a, or at least a belief that going out too hard against Donald Trump, contradicting Donald Trump, will, will financially hurt Fox News as a company. And that is not a, that does not speak to decisions being made because of journalistic integrity, which I, I think there's an argument that releasing this footage is that. Like, you, you, there's all kinds of reasons you could want to release this footage. The, the thing that Democrats are responding to and independents and Republicans who are tired of Trump shenanigans are responding to is this idea that the, the a journalistic output is constrained by the fundamental principle that you just can't go against Donald Trump. Yeah, well, there has to be some limitations to that principle, even in terms of, it, it does not seem to me, I could be wrong, in a, in a conservative media's best interest to just defend Trump to the mat anymore. We're talking about a dwindling base, uh, a base sapped of enthusiasm for a political figure who's, who is utterly disloyal, who, who slams Fox News every day in his own messaging. He feels betrayed. I mean, his, his view is not that Fox defended him or helped him in any way. His view is that they they stabbed him in the back like no organization ever has. Um, so, so at some point, you know, you got to <laughs> cut this guy loose. You know, it's, for it's yourself. interesting. Part of the narrative about why it was that Kevin His McCarthy. View is they all hate him and when want to see him fail. It, well, part of the narrative about why Kevin McCarthy chose to release these tapes is that after 1 6, in the media aftermath, he came out condemning Trump, condemning these actions like a lot of Republicans mm -hmm. did. And Kevin McCarthy has been out of, in, 
out of the good graces of that part of the party as a consequence since then. And part of what we experienced with all of the force the vote stuff in January was that this more Trump aligned faction was making a public criticism of Kevin McCarthy and the decisions that he's made, anti-Trump positions that he's made in the past, establishment positions that he's taken in the past. And some have argued that him giving this footage up is him showing contrition sure. and trying to get back into Trump's good graces, which, again, it's not clear to me that the party has benefited, to your point, yeah. by constantly making political decisions on the basis of, will Trump like me again? Yeah. What did he say at uh, CPAC? Um, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. More rising right after this. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, I gotta ask, did Elon Musk really fall for a Ligma Johnson prank on his own website yesterday? Are you online enough to even know or care what a Ligma Johnson prank is? Well, the good news is that this radar isn't really about a prank. It's about new evidence and a mounting sea of evidence that, as a boss, Elon Musk might be lacking and potentially liable. This twisted Twitter tale began yesterday when a Twitter employee named Holly Thorleifson tagged Elon Musk in a tweet thread explaining that he wasn't sure if he had been fired, along with the 200 or so employees who were axed a little over a week ago. He had lost access to his work computer, which was a clue, but couldn't get confirmation from HR as to whether or not he was still employed. Maybe if enough people retweet, you'll answer me here, he tweeted as a last resort. Now, as the thread went viral, Musk responded, asking, what work have you been doing? Halley, apparently concerned that sharing his workflow might violate certain confidentiality rules, asked for confirmation that he wouldn't be punished for answering Musk's question. And after Musk confirmed that it was okay, he explained that he had worked on a SaaS or software as service contract, among other duties. Musk then asked Halley to be more specific about the SaaS contract. And here's where it first gets a little weird. When Halley replied that he was working on a contract called Figma, Musk responded with two laugh cry emojis, apparently because he thought Halley was making a joke. You see, Figma sort of sounds like Ligma of the Ligma Johnson prank. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's like a Bart Simpson style joke. You know, the kind where he calls into Moe's pub with a name that sort of sounds like a name, but when you put it together, it sounds like something lewd, you know, Ligma Johnson. Anyway, Musk has a history of telling Ligma Johnson jokes, so many observers deduced two things. One, that Musk was so unfamiliar with his own company's design contracts that he didn't recognize the name of one, and two, that he assumed that Halley's tweet thread was all just a gag. Musk also disputed Halley's account of his professional responsibilities before ending with a YouTube video of a scene from the movie Office Space in which topically, a consultant and a manager looking to lay off staff interrogate one of the staffers about the utility of what he actually does there. You know the scene, the what would you say you do here scene? Okay, but Halley wasn't joking. Moreover, he had finally gotten a response from Twitter's HR confirming that he no longer worked at the company. So now he had a new question for the Twitter CEO. Will you make sure I get paid what I'm owed per my contract? You see, it turns out that Halley is an award-winning designer who sold his company to Twitter in 2021. And as a consequence of that sale, he negotiated some very favorable terms if he were to be fired. 
Apparently, the terms of his contract require a huge sum, millions of dollars, to be paid out if he is, in fact, fired. A sum so big that he's on a do-not-fire list, according to reporting at Fortune, Fortune magazine. It's worth noting that Halley seems like a very decent guy. He intentionally received most of the purchase price for his company's sale to Twitter as salary in order to maximize the tax he would pay in Iceland. Why did he want to maximize his taxes? Well, Halley sold his company and is telling below market price because of the toll his disability was taking on him. Halley lives with muscular dystrophy and wanted to pay a high tax out of respect to Iceland, where he's from, for the disability benefits he received there. Because of this arrangement, Halley was the second highest taxed person in Iceland in 2021. But before Elon realized all this, he lashed out. In now deleted tweets, he accused Halley of being a prominent, wealthy man who opportunistically confronted Musk to get a big payout. Musk tweeted, from what I've been told, he's done almost no work for the past four months, middle management or otherwise. Despite his claims on Twitter that he did work, it turns out he told HR that he couldn't work because he couldn't type, but was over the same period typing up a storm on Twitter. Yet there are so many people on Twitter defending him. This hurts my faith in humanity. Well, Elon was right about one thing. There were a ton of people on Twitter defending Holly. Holly quote tweeted Musk's tweets, claiming he was lying about his disability and explained in a detailed thread that he lost his ability to use his legs when he was 25 and has been using a wheelchair ever since. He's lost strength in his arms since then and has grown weaker over the years, prompting him to sell his company to Twitter despite making a lot of money on his own. Since working at Twitter, his, his condition has continued to decline and he's no longer to use his fingers for extended periods of time without his hands starting to cramp. And while he can write for an hour or two, he's no longer able to work hands-on as a designer. He also clarified that typing on the phone, which requires one finger at a time, is easier for him. Now, this thread of his had over 280,000 likes. As of last night, Halley accomplished a very rare thing on the Bird app indeed, ratioing Elon Musk on his own website. Now, at this point, many folks began pointing out that Musk's tweets were an HR nightmare. He disclosed an employee's disability. He claimed the employee was faking it and said it was part of why the employee was fired. The disability was part of why the employee was fired. Setting up a case for discrimination on top of the huge firing fee that, of course, we now know is part of Halley's contract. Moreover, at least one Twitter user pointed out that although Elon complained about Halley taking to Twitter to resolve his employment questions, Elon himself has argued that social media should be used in exactly this way, in lieu of unions. He's liked a tweet which argued that these days, with social media, you can be your own voice. You don't need to pay someone who makes $250,000 a year to be your voice. If Musk wanted Twitter, Twitter justice, to take the place of unions, well, he certainly got his wish yesterday. Now, this would not be the first time Musk has gotten into trouble for labor violations. In 2019, a judge ruled that a 2018 anti-union tweet from Musk's personal account constituted unfair labor practices under the National Labor Relations Act. And just this year, he was finally cleared of fraud charges stemming from a 2018 tweet indicating that he was taking Tesla private. Perhaps tired of litigation or of losing huge chunks of his fortune to this Twitter investment, Musk quickly changed his tune. 
Now, initially, he was uh, unapologetic, saying in a now-deleted tweet that he didn't care if it was unwise to insult a former employee in public, writing, he's the worst, sorry. But Musk soon capitulated, writing, I would like to apologize to Halley for my misunderstanding of his situation. It was based on things I was told that were untrue or, in some cases, true but not meaningful. He is considering remaining at Twitter. As the kids say, life comes at you fast. Now, apart from being somewhat entertaining Twitter drama, why does all this matter? Well, for one, this episode exposes that, unlike most Twitter users, Musk is not just a tweeter. He's an employer and a CEO with obligations to his staff that are people who make his company successful. He can't just tweet out every opinion. His words, and more importantly, his actions matter. Remember, this whole saga was precipitated by 200 layoffs last week, and the company is now down to fewer than 2,000 workers from these 7,500 who worked there when Musk took it over. Businessmen are often heralded for being job creators, but all too often, companies are bought for profit and management decisions are made, not the interest of improving companies, improving function, improving products, or even growth. Instead, we're faced with mergers, layoffs, and monopolistic practices that are celebrated, oftentimes by the very conservative media figures who claim to value job creation. Just listen to this clip from earlier this week about a prospective airline merger. This merger that's, that Susan was talking about between Spirit and JetBlue, yeah. if I understood her correctly, she's saying the courts are basically blocking that. Mm -hmm. That's outrageous. Well, the yeah, government. The, yeah, the, the government. That's outrageous. You're talking about Spirit and JetBlue. If they merge, they still have less than 20% of the market. How could anybody say that this is a monopolistic move? JetBlue is, a, is an airline because that has cut airline prices. I think this is outrageous. Is this administration big is exactly. They were against mer and by the way, mergers and acquisitions are the way that small businesses become big businesses. Mergers and acquisitions are how small businesses become businesses, not investment, hard work, just selling yourself off to some venture capital or merging with another monopolistic business. Okay, look, just months after one of the biggest airline disasters in American history, these pundits are arguing that fewer options for consumers, that consolidation, that monopoly is a good thing. Southwest's scheduling problems were driven largely by a choice to pursue profit, to engage in stock buybacks, instead of investing profits in updated technology that could improve the efficiency of the booking experience and for customers broadly. But again and again, we're told by these corporate media figures to celebrate individual genius, to trust the experts, and to devalue the laborers that make companies great. Yesterday, Elon was exposed as having a flippant disregard for an engineer. The same flippant disregard he's shown for hundreds or thousands of engineers that he's fired since he took over the company. The only difference is that this time, he picked on a deeply charitable, wholesome, accomplished person who happened to have won person of the year in Iceland and whose contributions to the company are much more difficult to dismiss especially given that multi-million dollar firing penalty clause in his contract. But you shouldn't have to be person of the year to have your work valued or to get a modicum of respect from your employer. Of course, sometimes there are going to be redundancies. There's going to be layoffs. It's hard to argue that, you know, that guy in that famous office clip really should have kept his job. 
But Musk and his allies have been arguing that most, if not all, of the employees fired have been lazy, disposable, and lacking in value. Even when we can see so many of them go above and beyond to help Elon keep his company afloat, like this employee who was fired after going viral for sleeping in the office to help deliver for the company. This saga with Holly demonstrates at the very least that the narrative promoted by Musk that the people who work at Twitter are disposable has some holes in it. And I hope that folks evaluating the wisdom of Musk's employment decisions do so with just a little more grace going forward. Yeah, look, I don't know what else to say about it. This was an ugly uh, incident that Musk caused. Um, it was not appropriate behavior for any manager anywhere to behave like this. He, I'm glad that he apologized and worked it out. He was correct to do so. Um, and, and Musk says, you know, I, that, um, that uh, it's better, uh, better to talk to people than communicate via tweet. I honestly hope <laughs> that that is something he takes to heart. Because he, lo he clearly loves Twitter. He loves sharing memes. He loves engaging the people. But he now owns the company. And his in his role as owner and manager, and I'm trying to censor him or say he can be less freewheeling and wild. Again, I, I think the, some of the disclosures he've done, he, he's done are in the public benefit. Um, but from a managerial standpoint, he has to, he should not, it's just not appropriate for any manager anywhere to lash out at employees like this. Yeah. We wouldn't lash out at our staff like that. You just, you, you don't, no. it's just, it's not good form to hash these things out in public. Some people will defend it because it's Musk and that's like, this is just not appropriate behavior regardless. So I'm, I hope yeah. they work it out. I'm glad he apologized. And again, he should strongly consider what he said he was going to do, which is put a CEO in charge of this company yeah. rather than micromanage it while doing it all publicly on Twitter itself. Yeah, and by the way, I say the same thing for there are all these disputes that happen at journalistic institutions where people are sniping at each other on the internet, on Twitter, when they work together. I think that's inappropriate as well. I mean, again, it's not yes. about censoring people. It's about 100%. It's, and it's a workplace out. issue. Yeah, when, when, uh, <laughs> when that happens in uh, media institutions, the yeah. Washington Post, New York Times, this whole, you know, fighting your, you're not, it's bad. Don't do it. Not supposed to do it. You know, you, you have your disagreements behind closed doors yeah. or in the structure of your debate-style television show. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's well, a little it's, different. It's always a pleasure, Robbie, and I'm glad that we can maintain such cordiality <laughs> both on and off screen on these Twitter streets. Now you heard it here first. <laughs> All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this. The four Americans kidnapped last Friday in Mexico have been found. Two are reportedly dead, while two others were rescued Tuesday and are back on U.S. soil. According to reports, the victims crossed the southern border into Matamoros, Mexico, where they were taken hostage by gunmen shortly thereafter. It's reported that one of them traveled there for a cosmetic procedure. In a news conference, an attorney general of the Mexican state said it's unlikely the Americans were targeted, but rather were caught in cartel crossfire. U.S. authorities are working with the Mexican government to find out what precisely happened. The FBI is offering $50,000 for the recovery of the kidnappers. Here to discuss more details in this case is border correspondent for News Nation, Robert Sherman. Thank you so much for joining us, Robert. Thank you for having me. So what else can you tell us uh, about this case and maybe the manner in which they were found? Right. So uh, a lot developed yesterday uh, because we were still in the hunt for where all these 
Americans were as of yesterday morning. And then it was determined uh, that all four of them were found in a wooden shack outside of Matamoros. Um, and ultimately, two survived and now are back on U.S. soil. You have one who uh, actually had to have uh, some pretty significant medical treatment while the other one was mostly unharmed. But two of the other Americans were killed. And that is the general thinking that we've seen here is, is that uh, these Americans were not necessarily targeted. Could be a case of mistaken identity. Could have been a case of just wrong place, wrong time. Uh, but the understanding is, is, is that one of the four Americans, Latavia McGee, came to have a cosmetic procedure done in Matamoros. Uh, that's something that we've had a question about. That's very common down here along the border. You can get pretty heavily discounted medical procedures in Mexico. That's why some people choose to have their dentist in Mexico or their annual checkups in Mexico because it is significantly cheaper. Uh, so that all lines up, but there are still a lot of question marks as to exactly why these Americans got caught in the middle of this fray. Yeah, I was reading some really fascinating stats about how many Americans do choose to get medical procedures in Mexico, including a lot of dental procedures, which is unsurprising given that dental insurance, your mouth isn't considered to be part of your general health insurance package in this country for, for some reason. But can you give us any more details about the cause of death of the two people who died? Did it have anything to do with recovery from the medical procedures? Were they shot, stabbed? You know, what, what, what actually happened there? You know, a lot of those details still haven't come out yet, but we do know that all four of them were fired upon when they crossed into Mexico on Friday. Their white minivan was shot at. They were mm -hmm. ambushed and then and they were dragged out. Uh, so there's still a huge gap in the timeline here because they made that crossing on Friday and they were found Tuesday. So those are questions that we're probably going to get answered in the next couple of days. Again, the two who were killed, their bodies still have not come back stateside. They're still mm -hmm. over in Mexico. Surely when they come back stateside, we'll get a little bit more clarity on that. And how were they found? Who discovered them in the shed? Yeah, so Mexican authorities discovered them uh, just outside of Matamoros in a rural community. It was a wooden shed. And interesting to notice is that there was somebody there a 24-year-old Mexican national who appeared to be guarding the four of them. And mm. that was the person who has been taken into custody, the only person taken into custody on all of this so far. Uh, so again, lots of questions here. How organized is this? It, it has all of those peripheral elements that suggest cartel violence, because these organizations are highly synchronized, highly organized. And it, it, it seems to be checking a lot of those boxes from what we've seen. Is this an area where there tends to be a lot of cartel activity, or is that just kind of everywhere, uh, unfortunately, now across Mexico? Uh, yes and yes, I would say, Robbie. Yes, from the standpoint that there's pretty much cartel activity in most states of the country. I think it is worth noting that there are six states in Mexico that the U.S. State Department has given that level four do not travel advisory to. One of them is Tamaulipas, which is the state in which all of this happened here. And I think it's worth putting into context, the State Department gives that level four advisory to countries such as Iran, Ukraine, Yemen, places like that. And here you have a border state which has that exact same moniker there. Um, in terms of the cartels that are involved in all of this, uh, 
The main cartel in this region is called the Gulf Cartel. And this is an organization over the last decade that has seen a lot of infighting and a lot of splintering. Uh, the last two leaders of the Gulf Cartel are actually incarcerated in the U.S. as we speak. So that creates a power vacuum. And that's when you start to see all this violence spilling out into the streets a bit more commonly here. That is likely the organization that had some hand in this in some capacity just because their headquarters are Matamoros. This is really their territory. And that's typically how this whole system operates here. So could it be reprisal then for the incarceration of by the U.S. government of the former leaders of this organization that action was taken against Americans? You know, I mean, it wouldn't rule anything out, but I would mm -hmm. say this, though, Robbie, is, is that the cartels, their first, their criminal organizations, second, their first and foremost, savvy business folks first. And from that standpoint, getting into the business of ambushing and killing Americans is really not good business to get into because here we are. Here is this national attention that is coming down on the city of Matamoros. Mexico. The White House is talking about this, the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security. That's not what the cartels want. They do not want any reason for the U.S. to get more heavily involved down here. They like to be forgotten about. They like to for business to just go on as usual. So it, it stands to reason that while I, I obviously can't really rule anything out, mm -hmm. it seems like more than likely this was mistaken identity, an accident on their part that proved deadly. Yeah, the, the motive there does seem kind of confusing for the points that you raised. And from a business perspective, it's worth noting that 1.2 million Americans apparently travel to Mexico each year for these kinds of uh, elective surgeries and cosmetic procedures and dental procedures. So uh, there certainly is a lot of incentive for the, that industry to keep going and for people to feel like they can do so safely. Look, thank you so much for joining us, Robert. Of course. Thank you for having me. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. Former CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield and other witnesses testified on the origins of COVID-19 before the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic today, where Dr. Redfield maintains his belief that the pandemic most likely was the result of a lab leak, and he called for a moratorium on gain-of-function research. Let's watch some of that. Based on my initial analysis of the data, I came to believe, and I still believe today, that it indicates that COVID-19 more likely was the result of an accidental lab leak than a result of a natural spillover event. It's my opinion that we should call for a moratorium on gain-of-function research until we have a broader debate. And on the benefits uh, or risks of gain-of-function research, Redfield said this. So one, one other path of questioning for you, Dr. Redfield. Proponents of this research claim it may result in vaccines or maybe even stop a pandemic. Dr. Redfield, has gain-of-function created any life-saving vaccines or therapeutics to your knowledge? Not to my knowledge. Has gain-of-function stopped a pandemic, to, in your opinion? No, on the contrary, I think it probably caused the greatest pandemic our world has seen. Do you find any tangible benefits uh, to gain-of-function research at this time? I personally don't, but I do want to stress, I think the men and women that support it are people of good faith because they truly believe it's going to lead to a potential benefit. I disagree with that assessment. 
Mm. Now, it's worth noting that this hearing is ongoing, and Dr. Redfield also uh, testified about being excluded um, from cause, uh, calls investigating the origin of COVID. And when asked, why do you think you were excluded from those calls, he replied, because it was told to me that they wanted a single narrative and that I obviously had a different point of view. Just to emphasize, uh, in, in, in early to mid-January, I did have multiple calls with Fauci, Farrar, and, and, and Tedros about how important I thought it was that science get engaged in, in aggressive, aggressive pursuing both hypotheses. I also expressed as a clinical virologist that I felt it was um, not scientifically plausible that this virus went from a bat to humans and became one of the most infectious viruses that we have with humans. That is really alarming stuff. You know, this guy is, he was head of the CDC. He's a government scientific expert, um, which goes to show that this idea that we just have to trust the science and trust the experts that was pushed on us by uh, mainstream people, talking heads, is, is very fraught because there is disagreement. There was tremendous internal disagreement. There was initially disagreement yeah. on whether this was more likely to have come from a lab. And then kind of everybody fell in line. There was a little bit of soft pressure. Dr. Fauci asked for that paper arguing for an animal spillover event. And then he really, at press conferences and subsequently, tamped down on speculation that it would have been the thing that impugns our government funding priorities. And, uh, and, and, you know, you, again, I, how many times have I said this in the last two weeks, but you were derided as a racist conspiracy theorist for thinking otherwise. Yeah. It, it's odd because I, I could see it, we eventually got there, right? And the fact of not really endorsing uh, lab leak theory into the 11th hour hasn't quieted people's concerns that it could be lab leak theory. And now we're getting these kind of endorsements from government agencies that it might be the case and the doors swung freely open. So the advantage of that, if you are kind of self-interested and wanting to avoid liability and cover up responsibility here, is that, okay, you pushed it off three, two, you know, three years, evidence is gone, and now we can talk about it safely without there being any real possibility of getting into the details. But excluding that very nefarious kind of uh, arch-villain perspective on what might have happened here, it seems like such a wasted opportunity because we could have run this to the ground years ago. It, it, it is likely that we will never actually have a definitive answer, but by precluding discussion about what out, you know, what causes mm -hmm. could exist, it really drew out this conversation and invested it with more significance, I think, to regular people who, you know, aren't going to be liable, aren't going to be affected by whether or not gain and function research uh, pers persists because they're not scientists, they're not really in this arena. Now, suddenly, ordinary people are very, very invested in this because it, it, it feels like, and frankly is, a kind of media conspiracy, government conspiracy to suppress information. And I, I, I'm blown away that they did it because so many are admitting, well, I, I didn't want to give this theory any daylight because, yeah. because of Trump because they thought they had like galaxy brain this into being like, I'm endorsing Trump or I'm, I'm promoting Trumpism if I say this. Uh, Jamie Raskin, uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, was actually trying to disentangle these things, these two things at this hearing. Um, I don't know if we can play any of that. Whatever the origins of COVID-19, whether it is bats or bureaucrats, no finding will ever exonerate or rehabilitate Donald Trump for his lethal recklessness in mismanaging the crisis in America, which cost us more than a million lives. Indeed, if COVID was actually the product of a lab leak or the worst bioweapon 
of mass destruction ever invented, as some have argued, and obviously we don't have the scientific evidence to say any of this yet. It would not only not remove Donald Trump's culpability, it would only deepen his culpability in the most profound way. So what he's, he, what he's trying to do there is say, well, may, okay, maybe it's a lab leak, but remember, Trump, so if it's a lab leak, the Chinese government screwed up, and, and who got the approval? Who, who, who gave their approval to the Chinese government? Donald Trump, I rest my case. So then he, he's like giving cover. It's okay yeah. to think it's the lab leak and you can still dislike Trump because look at all the times Trump said positive things about, it's, it's like, okay, I guess that's helpful. You can give permission people to explore this theory because it's, it's not, it doesn't make you pro-Trump to think it. So I guess, I guess that's actually doing good work. It's, it's <laughs> wild that you have to, that you have to walk yeah. like the liberal media through it. Like, no, it's, it's okay. Trump, it's okay. Trump derangement uses a force for good. <laughs> well, you may remember Dr. Redfield is one of the first officials, albeit former officials, to come out saying that a lab leak was the possible origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's watch this clip from CNN all the way back in 2021. If I was to guess this virus started transmitting somewhere in September, October in Wuhan. September, October. That's my own view. It's an only opinion. I'm allowed to have opinions now. You know, I am of the point of view that I still think the most likely uh, etiology of this pathogen in Wuhan was a, from a laboratory, um, you know, escaped. Uh, the other people don't believe that. That's fine. Science will eventually figure it out. It's not unusual for respiratory pathogens that are being worked on in a laboratory to infect the laboratory worker. This was during a time, of course, when the lab leak theory was widely criticized as a conspiracy, as evidenced by this NPR tweet which is still live on the site. I saw just uh, just now a tweet from Alina Chan, who we've had on many times to talk about the lab leak theory. Uh, as she points out, this is a, a, a detail I always point to as probably the, the one thing that tipped me most in the direction of thinking it came from a lab. She writes, it did not take years to find the intermediate animal host of SARS-1. It took two months in 2003 after the virus was isolated, essentially as soon as investigators realized they should go check the local animal market. It took less than a week in 2004 hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Later. Yeah. That makes me think of the segment we watched uh, where Jon Stewart was talking to Stephen Colbert <laughs> about lab leak theory. And Stephen Colbert's response to him was, OK, but can you tell me why you think it's lab leak theory without any, you know, any background on what the evidence was? And you're saying that right now. We could have been having a discussion about the facts, the facts that militate toward it being lab leak, the facts that militate toward it being a zoonotic origin. Yeah. And we wouldn't be in a position where years after COVID, late night hosts who comb through information because it is their job mm -hmm. are completely naive and ignorant about what even the information is that would help them come to a decision one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And then they had that, uh, and, and then uh, Stephen Colbert says, well, no, no, the lab's there because that's where the bats are. Jessica goes, are you kidding? There's bats <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> the, lab's, <laughs> the lab's there because the <laughs> that's not it. Yeah. yeah More know. rising after this, stay with us. Nonprofit government watchdog group OpenTheBooks.com alleges that Pfizer pays third-party royalties to the NIH and that the NIH is refusing to fully comply with Freedom of Information Act requests. Here's the organization's Adam Andrzejewski speaking with reporter Cheryl Atkinson on the subject. So our data shows at OpenTheBooks.com that every single year NIH doles out $32 billion in federal grant making to 56,000 entities. And that basically buys you the entire American healthcare space. 
Now royalty payments to researchers is not new and it's perfectly legal thanks to the Bay Dole Act of 1980, but concerns of transparency around the practice remain. You may remember this exchange between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci concerning royalties. Let's take a look. We've been asking you, and you refuse to answer, whether anybody on the vaccine committees gets royalties from the pharmaceutical companies. I asked you last time, and what was your response? We don't have to tell you. Right. We've demanded them through Freedom of Information Act, and what have you said? We're not going to tell you. But I tell you this, when we get in charge, we're gonna change the rules, and you will have to divulge where you get your royalties from, from what companies, and if anybody on the committee has a conflict of interest, we're gonna learn about it. I promise you that. Uh, Mr. Chair, can I, can I respond to that, please? Hey. Okay, there are two aspects for what you said. You keep saying, you approve, you do this, you do that. The committees that give the approval are FDA through their advisory committee. The committees that recommend are CDC through their advisory committee. And you keep saying, I'm the one that's approving a vaccine based on certain data. So I don't really understand with all due respect, Senator. You're the and one I have, that said you would not reveal, no. you would not reveal what companies well, well, gave, you the, gave you royalties or what company gave the other scientists royalties. You gotta move That's on. what you told oh. the committee. Senator Paul, S you sir, gotta move I, on. Could I please answer that? Briefly, you yes. You keep asking committees, they're not my committees. Now, it's important to note that in 2005, Dr. Dr. Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, told the Associated Press that he donates royalty payments he receives from the licensees of products he helped develop while working for the National Institutes of Health. Rising has reached out to the NIH to request comment, but we have not heard back at the time of this taping. Here to discuss is freelance journalist and author of Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19 Vaccines, Alexander Zaitchik. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks so much for joining us. This is a complicated subject. Can you tell us more about the royalty system and how this law from the 1980s set it up, what it was designed to do, and, and, and what the issue is now? Right. As I understand it, it's still pretty much capped at about $150,000. So the numbers that we're talking about in the context of pharmaceutical profits, the monopoly system that um, drives uh, the drug industry is, you know, um, is relatively small peanuts. And uh, companies paying the government royalties is sort of more or less how it's always worked pre and post by Dole. Um, you know, the government has an invention, they're supposed to license it out. Um, in my view, the big scandal is not so much uh, researchers receiving uh, royalty payments for their work, so much as it is a symptom of this larger coziness between the government and an industry that is basically um, using the monopoly system to price gouge the American people. And the NAIH has basically abandoned its role to serve the public and instead has become much too aligned with the industry and is an enabler, an accomplice, and a, a protector of these, of these monopolies. Um, and the vaccines are a point in case. Um, government science was basically given, along with these massive research subsidies, um, through warp speed to uh, Moderna, for example, 
and there were no public interest provisions attached. There was no pricing promises. There was no request that technology be transferred with other parts of the world. Um, it was basically a conveyor belt for uh, private industry. Um, and it's worth noting that there's also a FOIA request on um, Moderna's royalty payments from uh, Knowledge Ecology International, uh, an organization in DC run by James Love. Uh, and they have been a lot less forthcoming um, than Pfizer, and they actually did not pay any royalties for a long time. Um, so Pfizer is actually, in the context of all this, a better actor than Moderna in terms of using government science um, for their vaccine. So yeah, you're right, it is a complicated issue, but for me, the real problem is uh, NIH fully aligned with industry on, on the monopoly question when public science is, is involved and at the heart of a, an important breakthrough like a, like a vaccine. So I was perusing uh, your article from 2001 about this 1980 law that basically enabled this shift. And as I understand it, it used to be a presumption, the base, the base level standard was that if um, there was an innovation, a vaccine, some other scientific development that was developed as a consequence and funded by the government, then the expectation was that the public should be able to benefit from it um, without having to pay. It was, it was developed with public dollars. It should be at the public benefit and not, and not have the kind of monopoly power that is normally granted through copyright driving up prices and excluding public actors from being able to access it. And then at some point, in, uh, because of lobbying in the late 1970s, that shifted so that the government had to pr pr uh, prove, pr uh, you know, the presumption shifted so the government had to prove that it should have that privilege as opposed to the default being that way. Can you, can you unpack that for us a little bit and help us understand why that shift occurred? Yeah, for most of the post-war era, there was a default position within um, health and education and welfare, as it used to be known, that if a government invention uh, was result mostly of, of government research, there may have been private partnership involved at various stages, but if it was largely funded by the government, then the patent should stay within um, the people's hands. It should be public property and it should be broadly diffused and licensed very broadly because that is the whole purpose of these billions of dollars of uh, NIH research grants is to benefit the American people and the world. That used to be, you know, it's still carved in the building. Um, and in the 1970s, the uh, pharmaceutical industry convinced Congress and ultimately uh, Jimmy Carter that uh, this policy was harming, uh, slowing innovation, and that if corporations and, the, and drug companies were able to claim the patents, then they would be much more. Um, there'd be much more progress, and there'd be much more development, and we'd see, uh, you know, more more life-saving medicines that currently are being stymied by government control. Um, and it, this was based on a lot of very. Um, bad arguments that uh, are beyond the scope of this interview. But uh, what it did was create this system where uh, government science could be claimed hot off the press uh, by companies and, and monopolized. And these monopolies that uh, result from this conveyor belt, unfortunately, are not even the traditional monopolies of 17 years, but they're, they're being evergreened and they're turning into these sort of permanent monopolies. So the um, the sort of double payment of the American people is ongoing. The first payment, of course, is their tax dollars funding the $32 billion that was referenced in the interview at the open, and then uh, the monopoly prices, which continue. 
And um, the NIH has a responsibility to enforce the public interest measures within BIDOL, because it's a bad law, but it does have a rider that says, in the interests of the American people, generic production can be mandated. And every single time that groups, patient groups, nonprofits have come to the NIH and said, enforce that provision, because this monopoly is hurting consumers and people who are sick and you invented this thing and you have the power to lower the price, they have rejected that. The NIH has rejected a petition that's been on its desk and Joe Biden's desk, by the way, since day one, uh, to allow generic production of Xtandi, which was invented by the US Army. The United States Army invented a breakthrough prostate cancer drug that is six times what it costs in other parts of the world. Mm. So. All they have to do is, is say, yes, we're going to enforce our own laws. And they're not because they're completely in bed with the companies who are profiting, um, you know, right. obscenely. And with companies that have basically gained an exclusive right to produce these drugs that the government has given them with government, re like that's the, I mean, because this is even harming, of course, it's harming you know, the, the groups you're talking about, the patients, but it's also harming Competitors, right? Other yeah, companies it's, it's, it's are, are not allowed to develop yeah. these things because of the government granting a monopoly in perpetuity yes. on a specific product that government research funded. Yes, it's a completely anti-competitive policy that uh, the NIH is allowing to to flourish, and that was not the vision when when these research institutions were founded after World War II. The idea was to foster competition within the drug industry because that would uh, reduce prices allow access and ultimately drive diffusion, which is the whole point of the patent system, is to diffuse technology, not allow it to be enclosed and privatized and blocked off from competition. So um, it's a bad policy in every possible way, and the NIH has completely abandoned its responsibility to enforce uh, even the wiggle room that the bad laws we have allow. And the, the royalty payments are a symptom of that, but it, it's hardly the, the scandal here. Yeah, I mean, just to, to put a bow on that royalty payments bit, I mean, there are people who, I know that you characterize there's a relatively small amount of money in the grand scheme of things, but there are people who say that there is a conflict of interest fundamentally if someone like Dr. Fauci is both influencing public policy and making recommendations about vaccine use and also getting any degree of money, um, I don't want to use the word kickback, but getting any degree of money as a consequence of those policy decisions. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think that's a fair argument. And then, you know, in a, a perfect system or a better system, government scientists would uh, do their jobs um, for a salary because they are interested in furthering science and uh, developing medicine. And um, companies would be happy to use that science to make a product and the government could um, pay them for it if they needed to partner with industry. Uh, but yeah, there, there's really no reason for uh, everyone to be rooting for these uh, monopoly prices so that they can benefit. And everybody is uh, benefiting right now who's a part of this system. Um, a lot of these scientists are going off to work for these companies or they work for government labs that are later able to claim the patent themselves. And then, of course, they make much more than $150,000 on the royalty. It's not a royalty. They're basically claiming ownership. That revolving door takes place. Um, I mean, the whole system up and down 
is has been completely corrupted by the amount of money and power that the industry has been allowed to amass because of the corruption of the patent system in general. Mm. Alexander, very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more rising right after this. Filmmaker Ken Burns made a recent CNN appearance where he discussed Florida's education bills on critical race theory and American history. All of these bills that DeSantis and others are doing limit our ability to understand who we are and are not inclusive. They're exclusive. They're, they're narrowing the focus of what is and isn't American history. It's terrifying. It feels like a Soviet system or, you know, the way the Nazis would build a Potemkin village. Tucker Carlson's doing the same thing with the footage from 1-6. Uh, it's just uh, a, a kind of rewriting of history at the most dangerous level. It's a it's, it's huge threat to our republic. I'm doing, Don, a film right now working on a major series on the history of the American Revolution, and I can tell you that Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and George Washington and John Adams and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton are rolling over in their graves if they think that this person is carrying the mantle of what it is to be American. What do you think? This is very all very offensive to Thomas Jefferson. I mean, there, there are a few people, I got to say, who've probably been in the muck <laughs> with uh, the actual text of the Founding Fathers as much as Ken Burns as a documentarian, apart from Historians, I grant you, obviously. Um, and, you know, frankly, that's my impression of it, too. We are very proud in this country of having set up some separation between what um, centralized leaders are able to do in terms of, you know, dictating speech, what is taught in schools, um, you know, dictating how parents raise their children, um, having some separation between public life and personal life, the Establishment Clause saying that government shouldn't be in the business of religion, establishing one over the other, or really being involved in the least. And at various points in conservative history, though that part of what the Founding Fathers were all about seems to be at times selectively ignored by certain people in conservative leadership. During the Bush years, there was a, a very um, open belief that this uh, kind of a religious fundamentalism should guide the decision-making of political leadership. And now you have this intrusion, very explicit and purposeful intrusion by Ron DeSantis and people like Christopher Rufo, who are banning African-American AP classes, not allowing schools and districts to decide whether or not it's educationally meritorious, but deciding from a high level to ban entire disciplines. Um, there's this attempt to take over this new college um, and affect who is actually recruited to the school. I talked about this in my radar about that Princeton kid um, who wrote that New York Times op-ed last week. But this is the kind of real limitation on speech, expressly saying we only want certain kind of subjects taught, we only want certain kind of students to come here, and that's coming from this kind of very authoritarian conservative oh, movement. Is it, I mean, he, Ken Burns there brought up Hitler and Stalin. Is it Hitlerian? Is it Stalin-esque for public schools, government school? The government decides what gets taught in the government schools. I might not agree with every choice that's getting made in this category. I don't know that it's fascism for well, the know, state government to structure what the curriculum is that will be taught in those I schools. I think the state government can and does and always, sh you know, should and always does s s um, structure it. The question is, is Ron DeSantis the state government 
or all, all of the educators that have been hired by the state who come up with the curriculum and make these decisions in an ordinary course of business, should they be the ones that, that maintain the authority to do so? We have teachers in Florida posting pictures of the libraries in their classrooms that have been papered over because they're afraid of the criminal penalties they that are now attached. Yeah, they papered Nobody them over. They papered them over. As I was saying, they papered them over because they're afraid of the criminal penalties that are attached to if one of the books is deemed in Florida to be violative in some way that is very difficult to predict. 40 math books, math books that were being proposed to be printed in the state uh, or to be circulated in the state, used in the state in, in math instruction were flagged as inappropriate because of this kind of anti-woke legislation. And I've spoken to math teachers in Florida who have no idea why a given book that they've been using or that they had anticipated or, or had planned to use would even be, regardless of if they care about wokeness or not, they just can't even understand it's math. What What is even the issue here? So I think it's very difficult to argue that this isn't very overbroad you know, Goodwin's Law or what have you, people overuse the Hitler comparison and, it's, and that's fine. But you don't have to compare it to Hitler to think it's a problematic authoritarian overreach. I would like to give individual schools and families and the actual children more say and control over their education, create more options for them. And if you want a Rufo DeSantis style educational experience or college, that can be an option for you. Or if you want something else, you can get those same dollars and go to some other school. That would be fine with me. That's the solution I would bring. That way we could stop being at each other's throats over what everyone in the state of Florida or everyone in whatever state it is has to all learn the exact same thing and, and, yeah, and have these massive political battles over what that should be. Unfortunately, DeSantis has been doing something a little different, which is to get rid of the deans of state institutions, replace them with ideologically aligned deans, not hire them on the basis of merit or because of the recommendations from other faculty or staff in any kind of collaborative or informed process, but a purely ideological one. And then paying them a much higher salary than the dean previously paid in a way that very much looks like pay for play, and which raises, I think, very serious questions about whether or not the the actions that are being undertaken are truly to benefit the students of Florida, or whether it's a governor of a state enacting his own personal ideological agenda on everybody else who lives there. And it doesn't, I don't hesitate for a second to claim that, of course, if it were a left-leaning person who said, we're going to cancel economics classes, or let's say we're, we're going to cancel your regular economics class and only teach Marxism, that people wouldn't be up in arms and talking about revolution as a consequence of this. And I think that educators should be the ones that are making these decisions. I don't think, frankly, that students, parents and students should make these decisions. All due respect, the people, their students should not be making the decisions about what their own education is. Oh, I don't agree with that at all. There, there are people who are very adept. Teaching is not child's play. It's literally, it's, it's extremely important. We have decades and hundred and years and years of research about how to teach in a way that is effective, to bring kids up to standard, to compete in a, in, in a global sphere. And the idea, I think it really devalues the jobs. I think it really devalues and undermines the job that teachers do with extremely limited resources to actually make sure children are well educated. And if people are invested in teachers doing a better job, maybe they have tons of resources and math and reading scores have not budged in decades. The average teachers earn like forty and fifty thousand dollars a year. They're severely under resourced, and so many of them use their own scanty supplies to buy 
supplies for their classrooms because they don't have the, her those opportunities. In that's not the same thing as funding districts. teachers, Robbie. Okay, teachers. That's not the same thing. Teachers don't have outrageous wages. Uh, they do get very they good benefits, wages. and they have good hours, and they have summers off, and all those things. But most teachers have to take summer jobs because they can't afford to have the summers off no, because they they're so. Best, yes, they do. Both my parents were teachers, but we don't have to get into that. NBC News presidential historian Michael Bechloss uh, dubbed Florida's governor, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a local Mussolini in a recent conversation surrounding him and Donald Trump. Let's listen. Look what Rick DeSantis has done in Florida. He was known as sort of a nondescript uh, political leader, member of Congress. Suddenly, he really has tried to turn himself into sort of a local Mussolini in Florida with the book banding and the br brutal tactics. And even this week, this suggestion that bloggers have to register with the state for the honor of writing about the governor and other, other political leaders. We have to call this what this is. This is fascism and authoritarianism that goes even beyond what Trump has talked about. So DeSantis actually uh, spoke out against that blogger bill that was mentioned in the clip. Uh, it was an outrageous bill that a Republican state senator put forward that would require um, independent bloggers to register with the state of Florida. Uh, DeSantis said explicitly that he does not support it. Every person in the legislature can file bills, right? I see these people filing bills, and then there's articles with my face on the article saying that, oh, they're going to have to, red bloggers are going to have to register for the state. And it's like attributing it to me. And I'm like, okay, that's not anything that, that, that I've ever supported. I don't support. Uh, I've been very clear about what we're doing. And so people have a right to file legislation. They have a right to, to do different types of amendments and all that other stuff. Um, but the Florida, leg a whole 120 of them in the House and however many in the 40 in the Senate, you know, they have independent agency to be able to do things. Like, I don't control every single bill that has been filed or amendments. So it's actually on uh, News Nation, our uh, parent company's um, similar under the same venue uh, cable station over the weekend talking about this bill. It is a very bad bill that would, uh, it, it's bad on so many fronts, so it requires independent bloggers to register with the state. But if, you're a, if you work for a newspaper, you don't have to register with the state. So it's bad because obviously you can't, it just violates the First Amendment to require people to register with the state to express their speech. Then it's additionally bad because it draws some like false difference between like official journalists and non-official journalists, which also doesn't exist. There's no there's no category of speech under the First Amendment. Well, you're a journalist. You're if, if you're engaging in journalism, like you, we all get the same speech protections. Yeah. So it's a very very bad bill. And I was glad to see that DeSantis says yeah, he does it's, not it's support it. It's regrettable that another you know conservative leader in the state advanced the bill. It is good that Ron DeSantis shot this one down. But there is a I mean there's a there's a culture of censorship that's emerging that you can't ignore. I mean and it's not this is not a subtext. This is not subtle. Ron DeSantis has explicitly said that the goal is to transform this Florida school, New College, into a, a model that's like Hillside College, a Christian school in Michigan. Hillsdale. Hillsdale, that, that has been active in, in conservative politics. So this is from the, the New York Times, just to get a sense of the scale and scope of what's happened here. This is a, this is a, a, a college that has a culture of its own and is probably in the minority being a relatively progressive college, small college with only a few hundred students in the state. Over 25 tumultuous days last month, the Republican governor removed six of the college's 13 trustees, replacing them with allies holding strongly conservative views. The new board then forced out the college's president, a career educator named 
and, na and named Mr. DeSantis's former education commissioner, a career politician, as her replacement. And then the board signed off on paying uh, DeSantis's pick a salary of $699,000 a year, more than double what his predecessor made. Now, this is on some level, it's just not a conversation about speech or politics. It's a question about authoritarian fiefdoms and whether or not this kind of control should be leveraged by the governor of the state on a random college that was picked to be a test kitchen for promoting explicitly promoting his personal ideological whims. He's the elected governor of the state. So are you saying you would have you have no problem with this the college previously a publicly funded college being very left and explicitly left because what because some semi less democratic picked board of regents or education officials are the one who structured it that way? Because the people who founded the college and worked at the college and who elect a board and vote. It's a public, it's a, it gets public resources. And I'm sorry, it's let, a, let me ask, ask you this question. Yeah. You think it's appropriate for the governor of the state to fire the board of trustees of a college and appoint its own um, director from his own personal ranks and then pay them twice as much as the predecessor had been paid? I would have it be, a, if it's going to be a very ideological institution, I would rather have it be a private institution that can attract students and So if it's a public institution, in your position is that the governor of the state can exert their will on a private institution, including by putting people who are their own friends and allies into leadership yeah. positions and doubling their salary? It's illegal that that's what he's no, doing? No, we're talking about morals. Okay. Should, is that something that you think is appropriate no. for a governor to do? No. Then we're in agreement. And so the question is, why is it that this culture has emerged in Florida where DeSantis is kind of wantonly doing these kinds of things? And is there going to be any political pushback? Because he's elected governor, there's 55% for what he does in the state. Well, we'll see. I think if people like yourself and other people who are leading conservative mm -hmm. were, open, were critical of what has been done here, and I think in a way that is pretty transparent, then maybe he wouldn't enjoy so much goodwill they're playing, in the state. They're playing the music on us. <laughs> they're making us end the segment like we're giving our Oscars acceptance speeches. <laughs> More rising right after this. D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson said Monday he would withdraw the city's controversial crime bill after it became clear the legislation would not earn Senate approval. D.C. legislators and Hill Democrats were blindsided last week when President Biden said he would not sign the bill, which earned headlines for lowering the maximum sentence for carjacking to a mere 24 years. Despite critics that say the new code is soft on crime, if passed, it would actually increase sentences for attempted murder, attempted sexual assault, and misdemeanor sexual abuse. Biden ally Pete Aguilar told The Hill, quote, It's disappointing for me and anybody who believes in home rule. Honestly, I'm a former mayor of a city of 70,000, and I wouldn't want the federal government coming in and telling me what city ordinances to pass. So I think it's disappointing in that context. Joining us now to weigh in is Rafael Mengual, Nick O'Neill Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of Criminal Injustice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, so look, I am someone who is concerned about rising crime in American cities, some American cities, including um, D.C., so I was prepared to, I think, agree with the reason this was, uh, this was not going to happen. But it sounds to me, so correct me if I'm wrong or give us your perspective on this, the, the carjacking concern, it looks like the, the penalties are still going to, while being reduced, are still extraordinarily steep and actually beyond, outside the bounds of what anyone would like reasonably be charged with anyway. So you know, how would you respond to, I, I guess, the, the criticism then that this actually isn't undermining public safety? Do you think it is undermining public safety? 
Yeah, I mean, I certainly think it's undermining public safety, but it's not just because of the carjacking provision. I mean, you know, and one question to ask is, is if in fact it's true that the current sentencing practices for carjacking are already under uh, the, the newly proposed maximum range, then that also raises the question of why bother to do this at all? Um, I mean, certainly it's, it's not necessary if, in fact, current practices are ready to sentence well below that range. But it's not just carjacking, but also robbery, burglary uh, and other offenses where we saw the lower maximum penalty, uh, the, the maximum penalties get lowered. And on top of that, we also saw uh, the basic uh, the basically, you know, the, the, the elimination of mandatory minimums, which is, you know, an important aspect of, of sentencing insofar as one of the problems that mandatory minimum sentences respond to is the unwillingness or unreliability of judges uh, to sentence appropriately. And so this offers some protection in that realm. Getting rid of mandatory minimums, uh, virtually all of them, at the same time as lowering the maximum penalties while also imposing a bunch of different new burdens on the criminal justice system, for example, expanding the right to a jury trial to all misdemeanor cases, I think would have been uh, collectively um, an effort that certainly undermined public safety. And, and that's why I think we saw such robust opposition to the bill. But for, from a purely principled standpoint, I guess, why shouldn't minors be uh, entitled to hearings under a fair system of due process? I don't think anyone is, is opposed to a fair system of due process. And I don't think that the current code denies that. Um, you know, this has been one of the claims that, that I think, um, you know, supporters of these kinds of reforms have made, but I don't think they've really uh, borne their burden of proof with respect to bearing it out. So you raise the question of why these revisions are happening and, you know, advocates who are in support of the revisions point out that they haven't basically been revised since they were first established, however many dozens of decades ago, a hundred years ago, or what, what have you. And you question, you know, Robbie's presumption or, or statement that the 24-year penalty for carjacking might actually be out of step with other states. I just did a quick Google in the state of Texas. I, I intentionally chose more conservative states. The state of Texas, uh, it's a second-degree felony punished, punishable by two to 20 years in prison and a fine of up to $10,000. In Florida, it's a little higher at 30 years. D.C. at 24 years doesn't seem to be widely uh, out of step with that. Moreover, people have argued that it's important to reduce criminal penalties. For example, it was illegal to drink in the back of a party bus. Advocates said, obviously, the whole point of party buses is for people in the back to be drinking. Why make that against the law, especially if it's not being enforced for obvious reasons? That seems like a reasonable change. Um, another change uh, was that uh, sex abuse, a pretty serious crime, was only treated as a misdemeanor. And criminal justice, um, public defenders and the like have, said, have pointed out that they have, have some um, clients who have done very, much worse things but have a lower penalty than other clients precisely because the standards were too low. All that being said, you know, what is the objection here fundamentally from you to revising a code so that it seems to be more in line with contemporary understanding of people who need to be punished like sexual abusers and limiting punishment for people who don't need to be punished like folks who pay for the service of being passengers in a party bus? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's important, um, you know, to understand that the objection is not that the entirety of the proposal is bad, right? And again, you know, we're, there's a lot of focus on the carjacking element. I suppose that's because carjacking has been on the rise in Washington, D.C., but that's not the only crime for which maximum penalties were lowered. 
Um, you know, and I think the other thing that was objected to was the you know, virtual elimination of mandatory minimums. All of that, I think, sends the wrong message at a time of rising crime, which is, you know, that we're going to essentially make the system softer. And if, in fact, again, we're right about, you know, current sentencing practices already being aligned with what the proposal was doing, I think it raises a very, you know, logical question for a lot of people, which is then why bother to go through all of the trouble and waste all of the political capital in order to do this if, in fact, it's not necessary. Um, you know, but I am, I'm all for addressing the significant overcriminalization problem, right? I mean, when I first started working in public policy, the, the, the work that I did was on the issue of statutory and regulatory overcriminalization. I think if you look at state criminal codes around the country, as I did, and I have over the years, what you'll find are a lot of crimes that really shouldn't be on the books. I mean, at the federal level alone, there's some three to 400,000 criminally enforceable rules and regulations. I can barely think of 300 things that you should go to jail for, let alone 300,000. So there are perfectly good reasons to align our criminal codes with what our contemporary understanding of, of, of criminal conduct actually is. But I do think that people saw this as kind of, you know, a Trojan horse effort to get into the bill some other things that were misguided or that would undermine public safety. And at a time in which, you know, the reform movement has essentially been unidirectional insofar as criminal justice reforms over the last decade have essentially lowered the transaction cost of committing crime or raised the transaction cost of enforcing the law. That, that's, um, not, you know, that's, that's fundamentally uh, not true. As evidenced by the fact that the case we're talking about right now is a Democratic president of the United States of America intervening, intervening in a not state, but local law and law uh, change that was democratically decided upon by council members to go in a tough on crime direction, to undermine it. And that is the Democratic leader that was elected in the middle of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, Justice uh, riots, and who has not, in fact, passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. But I'm sorry, I don't yeah, mean but to he's interrupt. Not, he's, he's not proposing new policy, right? I mean, he's, he's no, blocking he's, he's, a new he's policy. No, he's vetoing so, reforms, so democratically supported reforms. Right. But the reforms that have gone through have been unidirectional, which is what I'm saying. Right. I mean, if you look at all of the indicators that criminal justice reformers say they care about, they've been moving in the direction that they want to move in for well over a decade. The prison population over the last decade is down some 24 to 25 percent. Same with the jail population. Arrests are down about the same. We see a decrease in the number of police officers working in urban jurisdictions. Um, you know, but, so but, we've but, seen but, lots of successful okay. bail, discovery, sentencing reform efforts, decriminalization efforts. You know, so so I do think it's it's completely fair and apt to categorize to, to characterize the criminal justice reform movement as a blade as unidirectional in favor of people who might find themselves ensnared in the system. Yeah. So when I, I started to educate myself about this bill and what was happening with it, I, I was very prepared to actually agree, well, with, with some reservations about the federal government overriding local authorities, which I don't like. I was prepared to agree with the criticism, but then when it looked like it does not seem to me that, for instance, again, the carjackings, the, the senti what the sentences are on paper doesn't seem to be the issue. Maybe, maybe we need more enforcement of them and not enough people are being arrested. I don't know. But it doesn't seem like the, the changes to the sentencing guidelines are themselves a problem. So then why, given that we're, we've already done this, they did the work of revising this very outdated code. So, you know, you might say, well, not all of it is perfect, but like the work is done now. And so is it really a good idea for Biden to kind of come in dramatically and then undo all that work if, if we're agreeing that really like the, the you know, putting the, the on paper sentencing for, the, for this and other crimes in line with other conservative states is not actually the problem, then it seems, it seems wild to like support Biden doing this. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I think that that argument, um, you know, might be able to be made with respect to the carjacking offenses, but, you know, not with respect to robbery, not with respect to burglary, not with respect to the other offenses for which we've seen either um, a lowering of the, the statutory maximum sentences or an elimination of the mandatory minimums. You know, at a time in which, you know, as Robert Conti just said on the news just the other day, you know, the typical person charged with a homicide in Washington, D.C. has 11 prior arrests. We see the same thing in cities across the country. In Chicago, that number 12 prior arrests, where one in five have more than 20 prior arrests. I think what what this opposition reflects is a concern about the system's either you know inability or unwillingness to draw a line as to repeated criminal offending. And if you're going to successfully draw a line with respect to repeated criminal offending, you're going to need the tools to do that. Eliminating mandatory minimums and lowering statutory maximums for crimes beyond just carjacking um, it, it does, does not does not signal um, a movement in that direction. And so, you know, I think this is, again, a, a perfectly defensible response um, to, to a reform effort during a period in rising crime. You, you talk a lot about, about mandatory that... minimums. Doesn't uh, my, you know, from a, from a, like, again, from a due process standpoint, shouldn't judges have the authority to take varying factors into account to sentence appropriately judges and juries to the facts of the cases before them rather than having to rely on f not even guidance but of, you know official dictates from legislatures and other bodies yeah, i mean it's not at all uh, incongruous with the concept of due process for the legislature to draw uh, boundaries with respect to to a judge's discretion i mean we see that with statutory well, maximums right it, i mean it literally that, that same argument a judge's discretion it literally well, so definitionally does, so puts constraints maximum. on a judge's discretion. Well, so, so does the statutory maximum. You're telling the judge that you don't have the discretion to sentence beyond 24 years for carjacking. That's well, a limit Raphael, on, on judicial discretion. From a due it's process just a limit that certain people like. From a due process perspective, many people feel like there's a much more risk in saying you have to punish someone at least this amount. And they are happy that we live in a country that establishes certain maximums for people being thrown in jail, given that the liberty interests are clearly cutting in one direction and not the other. And that some but, people have an investment primarily in supporting rules, rights, and obligations that support freedom, as opposed to ones that can be weaponized in order to fuel a mass incarceration crisis, as you pointed out, the prison population going up year after year. Despite, I should point out that robberies, you. You were pointing to the robbery statistic in particular. I don't know if you know what the old versus the new um, robbery guidelines are for D.C., but it's worth noting that robberies are down 16 percent compared with the same time last year in the district. I'd be interested to see what they are you know, compared to, say, 2015 or 2017 or 2019. Um, but, but, but again, um, you know, due process is not implicated by drawing out sentencing ranges or setting mandatory minimums, right? What, what due process refers to is the process through, that, that someone is offered when they're charged with, with a criminal offense. That is not undermined. I mean, you know, if you're concerned about the, the appropriateness of the sentence, your mechanism here is the Eighth Amendment and cruel and unusual punishment. Now, if you think that, that these kinds of, of, of statutory um, sentence ranges um, are cruel and unusual, then that's an argument uh, that, that can be made. But it's not a due process issue. Raphael, do you know you, you stepped away from com the conversation about the carjackings 
which again, 24 year penalty for carjacking and said, well, what about the robberies, the robbery, the new robbery rules? I wasn't able to find them right now. Do you know what the old robbery guidelines were versus the new robbery guidelines that are that you find to be so objectionable? Not off the top of my head, no, but I do know that the statutory maximum sentences for robberies, burglaries, and a host of other offenses in addition to carjacking were also lowered. And I do know that the mandatory minimum sentences um, for virtually all offenses were eliminated. Isn't it important to know, murder. To a, before one objects to that lowering, wouldn't it be important to know whether or not it's lowered to a point that might disincentivize behavior or lowered to a point that seems to be letting people off the hook for bad actions? Because it certainly seems sure. to be the case that many people are responding to the revelation that the carjacking sentences are still 24 years, very much in line with other states, including conservative states, to say, well, what exactly is all the hubbub about? And I'd be curious to know before people wring their hands and tear out their hair over the new robbery guidelines, what they in fact actually are. That would seem to be, to me, a first step before leveraging or lobbying complaints. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, again, I, I think that would that would also apply in the other direction. Um, but it, it's not just the the carjacking issue. And, it, you know, I think when you're talking about well, we're lowering talking about the robbery issue the right now. Right, we we're talking be, robbery, we're talking a, burglary, a deficit we're of talking detail other here. offenses. Right, and we're talking all other offenses other than first-degree murder that have statutory minimums, mandatory minimums, that are now going to be eliminated. Right? And a this, number of other is, charges that have been, uh, the penalties have been increased because there sure. were basically no penalties at all. So it's a real mixed bag here, which again begs the question why the president of the United States chose to step in and undermine the democratic decision-making of a locality that frankly, for exactly this reason, has been advocating for uh, statehood and, and self-determination. But we appreciate you coming in today to talk to us, Raphael. Thank you. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. We were grateful to have 2024 presidential candidate Marianne Williamson on Rising this past Monday. Now, since then, many mainstream media outlets are overlooking her when they're not flat out insulting her. Here's what MSNBC had to say. Well, so far, the only Democrat to announce a run is self-help author Marianne Williamson. Would a Biden announcement essentially close the door for everybody else? Jose, it would close the door for your more established candidates, for high-profile Democrats that are already in office. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre seemed to share a similar sentiment, sentiment. Here's what she said. Is the president uh, annoyed, frustrated uh, with Marion Williamson for jumping in the race ahead of him? Did he want a clear field to run uh, against the Republican nominee in 2024? Just not tracking that. I mean, if I had a, a uh, what is it called, a little a little globe here, Bristol wall, Bristol wall then I can tell you. But I, I <laughs> imagine eight ball, whatever. If I can feel her aura, I, I just I just don't have anything. I just don't have anything to share on that. I'm, oh, gosh, you guys are making me laugh now. It's all uh, fun and games, I guess. Just giggles. Yeah, it strikes me as. Um, a weirdly, uh, a weird admission to a, to say that you're the press secretary for the president of the United States of America who hasn't been tracking people who enter the presidential race. Um, that seems a little hubristic. I think and the- And also just dishonest and untrue. It's, it's dishonest <laughs> and untrue. She clearly but has. She, she knows who Marianne Williamson is because she was quick to make a joke about crystal orbs and such, um, which, you know, I, a lot of people pointed out it's arguably sexist. Would a 
New York Times bestselling author, um, someone who's been in the public sphere who sold millions of books and has a lot of much more significant name recognition than a number of other candidates who have thrown their hat in the ring and the Democratic primaries have gotten this reaction. I mean, remember the, the primary field in 2020, which included Marianne Williamson, had like 25 people in it at one point. If, if Patrick Duvall entered the race, uh, would we be uh, getting laughter and short rolls, despite the fact that zero people in America voted for him or really knew who he was, or even that maybe he was even running uh, last time around? Marianne Williamson was the most Googled person after, I think it was the first debate that she participated in, it might have been the second, um, because people really responded to what she had to say. And I think that her professional career indicates that certainly she has a message that is appealing to some folks. It's a little frustrating, I think, to some Democrats even to see how willing the Democratic Party is to align behind a chosen candidate. Biden is president because other competitive candidates dropped out before Super Tuesday so that the centrist vote could be aggregated around him. Um, there was the reporting by Donna Brazil, certainly no leftist ally, about the uh, decisions made within the DNC to openly support uh, Hillary Clinton and not give fair, uh, Bernie Sanders a shake. And there was a, and in court, the DNC explained that it had no obligation to treat Bernie Sanders, Sanders fairly in the 2016 primary. And the choice to move the primary schedule around to that South Carolina is the first state that has voted is all, and it's all indication of the Democratic Party's unwillingness to have a fair and open contest. You know, I think it's interesting to compare how the, the reception to Marianne Williamson in her media, the Democratic media side, actually to Vivek Ramaswamy, mm -hmm. a, a Republican candidate we've interviewed on this show. Uh, obviously, their views could not be mm -hmm. more discordant. But uh, but Vivek Ramaswamy is he's he said he's running for president as a Republican. He is ostensibly challenging Donald Trump, who is in the race. Um, like Marianne Williamson, he's not a political figure. He has no history of being elected to office. You know, he's he's he he polls very lowly. He's not not widely known outside of political circles. But he's being taken at least somewhat seriously. He's been interviewed on Fox tons of times. They're not the talking heads on Fox and other conservative channels. They're not laughing at him. They're not right. making fun of him. They're not making jokes about him. Um, they're taking what he has to say seriously. Yep. That's uh, it's very illustrative that that's what happens it, on the right. Is. Not happening. No, nobody's inviting uh, Marianne on MSNBC and CNN to challenge uh, to say that uh, you know, she's actually the person to deliver on Biden's message of you know doing things for working families and et cetera. And, and look, by the way, what happened um, when liberal media figures were talking about even Nikki Haley. There does seem to be a pattern emerging here. Don Lemon describing her as past her prime. There seems to be this really gut reaction to, I think, some female candidates in particular, because it, it disrupts the narrative that people would ordinarily want to tell about why someone doesn't deserve to get to be president. But when you have a white male president and you have these women and people of color like Nikki Haley that are in the race, I think it really disrupts the Democratic knee-jerk, I'm just going to root for the person who is the most diverse and not have a conversation about policy. Moreover, I saw, I saw another clip that was actually uh, a mainstream media, a liberal news media clip that was responding to Karine Jean-Pierre's clip, like we just did. Um, and the, and, the, and, the, and the, the host said, well, we, they, she obviously doesn't take Marianne Williamson's campaign very seriously, and we don't have to either. Instead <laughs> of the conversation, exactly like that. And I don't know. I don't know if that's going to have the effect um, of coalescing voters behind Biden that they think it will. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's fair to acknowledge that it's extremely this is an extremely long shot candidacy. Sure. Joe Biden is overwhelmingly likely to be chosen again as the Democratic nominee for president. But um, I, I don't know if if the frankly insulting way a couple of these figures have uh, have have discussed Marianne is really helpful for any cause. Yeah, and it's, it was worth also noting that Marianne Williamson, from a policy perspective, which is not something that any of the mainstream hosts want to seem to talk about about at this point is the only person in the race who is supportive of Medicare for All, a deeply popular policy that really catapulted Bernie Sanders to notoriety in 2016. Um, she supports a wealth tax. She has been an open critic of the treatment of Julian Assange. Um, she has, you know, I think some substantive criticisms that have been uh, levied against her by the left about her foreign policy. But in the context of a Democratic primary vote, which is the context that a lot of people are going to be in, regardless of whether or not they ultimately choose to vote third party or do something different in a general election, it's, it's clear that this is the only person who's standing for a lot of the left principles that were very, very popular to both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders candidates back in, in 2020. And to be so dismissive of that and to act like those kind of policy prescriptions aren't attached to Marianne and that you can attack the person without seeming to undermine important issues that are that you're, the public, that your constituents are invested in, it comes off as very disrespectful. Mm. Well, Marianne Williamson responded to the comments made by Karine Jean-Pierre, tweeting a video in response. Let's take a look. I was so sad to see the commentary of the president's press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, about me, about crystal balls, which I've never spoken or written about, and auras, which I've never spoken or written about, and just speaking so derisively and in such mocking terms about someone who is running for president of the United States. And as a woman, and this is the Democratic Party, I have a constitutional right to run, and my candidacy is about substantive issues and policies. I have made it clear in interview after interview that the president is a nice man and that I have no interest in taking personal pot shots. But apparently the White House, or at least as expressed by Corrine, doesn't share my commitment to the high ground. The hypocrisy here is something that all of us can see because the president has said on his first day in office that anyone in his administration who spoke disrespectfully about anyone would be fired on the spot. It's a good point. She's got he, receipts he, on that. He, he did, did say he did that. say that. And she does speak respectfully of him. We interviewed her on Monday. I believe it was this Monday. It was me and Bacha. And she said, look, I, I'm grateful to Joe Biden. I think he did a, a, a heroic thing by, by defeating Donald Trump and becoming president. But uh, I, I am laying out a substantive policy agenda that is sharply more progressive than his that I think will be better for the country. Yeah, look, shots fired. Is, uh, is Marianne Williamson calling for Karine Jean-Pierre? To be asked, will the Biden administration respond? We'll have to keep following this story. Tomorrow on Rising, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere you listen to podcasts at all. And we will see you back here tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.